left hand goes down, up, down, up, down, up, down, which is manic depression. The right hand is doing this manic thing. It's a little bit disturbing, even though it's it's in a major key. It's it's a little bit it's percolating, and then there's this boom da da da, which is a little malevolent. Hi, I'm Alan Altman, and I'm Dave Juskow, and this is Billy Joel A to Z. times I've ever known And I believe there is a time for meditation in cathedrals of our own Now I have seen that sad surrender in my lover's eyes And I can only stand apart and sympathize For we are always what our situations hand us And see the sadness or euphoria They say that these are not the best of times, but when you're doing an all-Billy Joel, all-the-time podcast, then they may be... There are a handful of songs in the wonderful Billy Joel catalog where if you're listening to a podcast on Billy Joel, you may seek out before you listen to the podcast as a whole. Scenes from an Italian restaurant, moving out, Piano Man, and of course, House of Blue Light. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for it. (laughs) Summer comma Highland Falls is the Billy Joel song every true fan and whatever I am can agree on is a tune that bonds all of us together. In the greatness of what is Sir William. Summer Highland Falls was never released as a single. In fact, it was only put out as a B-side to the re-release of Say Goodbye to Hollywood on Songs in the Attic in March of 1981, even though the album was released on September 14th, 1981. It has gained its reputation simply from all of us knowing what Billy Joel is capable of as a musician, a lyricist, and a singer with a magical vocal range. Summer Highland Falls is the second song off of Billy Joel's legendary fourth studio album, Turnstiles, which was released on May 19th, 1976. And it is also the second song off of Billy's 1981 live album, Songs in the Attic. Billy Joel has often said how Summer Highland Falls fits nicely as a second song. Then he proved it twice. <laughs> The Songs in the Attic version was performed and recorded on July 23, 1980 at the Bayou in Washington, D.C. This exquisite song also appears on 2000 Years, the Millennium Concert and live at Shea Stadium, where Billy says before playing it, here's a song for all the manic depressives out here tonight. This strange ode to manic depression song through the years has clearly resonated and connected Billy with the people that love him. This fan classic is a very unusual song. 
in that the title doesn't appear in the lyric and there's no chorus. This, of course, limited its hit potential, but the song has endured as a favorite for we ardent fans. So how can one geographic and philosophic yin and yang sweet and sour song about manic depression encompass everything we love about Billy Joel? Well, that is today's topic of discussion, isn't it? Without further ado, let me bring in my partner and co-host of the Billy Joel A to Z podcast, Alon Altman. Hello, Alon. And dare I say, welcome to a very special episode of Billy Joel A to Z. Thank you, Dave. I know we were both looking forward to doing this one for a long time, as were many other fans. Uh, I know some people thought it was called A Summer Highland Falls, and we're expecting it in the A's. No, they weren't. (laughs) You just pulled my House of Blue Light gag. Yeah. A Summer in Highland Falls. (laughs) But there probably are some people who think of this song, like you said, because he doesn't put the title in the song itself. There probably are those fans who are like, yeah, I like that song of his sadness or euphoria, like where they have no idea what the actual name is. Yeah, and I didn't know there was a comma after summer. I like how you said that. Summer comma, Highland Falls. Very important. It's very clear. There is a comma after summer. Yeah, I like that. It just, it just, the whole thing, doing that makes it feel like you're, it's like, here's a snapshot of a time and a place. It's summer. You're in Highland Falls, whatever that is. No one really knows the place. It's upstate New York, nice little town. And with that as the backdrop, Billy Joel writes probably his most poetic lyrics, I think, of any of his songs. You know, they're not a specific story like some of the other songs that we love of his. They're more vague, but you really just get the feeling completely of what he's going for here. And it's matched with this beautiful piano and this beautiful melancholy mood that he creates. So it's really the perfect little poignant song by Billy Joel. I agree 100 percent, Alon. And that is what brings us to our next extremely radical moment of this podcast. You're going to have to guess where Christopher Bonanos in a very strange and shocking revelation as Christopher Bonanos ranks this song. I mean, with that with saying that we're I mean, Glenn Gambo and the fans are all we're all in agreement. But this is this is rather shocking. Where do you think uh, Christopher Bonanos from New York magazine puts this classic Summer Highland Falls and his strange catalog of rankings okay so you're leading me to think that he did not put this super high like we would think uh, us fans would put it so but there's no way he can go too low on this song but i'll just say um 29 you hit it right on the nose i mean it's uh, 27 he says everyone but me seems to single out this (laughs) when it says everyone but me it's never good everyone but me seems to single out this song as one of his very best maybe the best i just don't hear it I think it's pretty, but not great. I'll admit that the live recordings are way better than the studio version, which I will tell you, I completely disagree with. I'll also give you that the piano performance is among his best. I still say choose between reality and madness. It's either sadness or euphoria is pretentious undergrad stuff. We may have to agree to disagree here. He doesn't like this song. He doesn't like this song. He's so inconsistent. He just literally street life serenader. What did he put that at 14? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Right. And he's talking about how he doesn't like sadness or euphoria. That's undergrad stuff. I mean, what were the lyrics in street life serenader? That was some ridiculous stuff in there. I don't know. And I, it sounds to me, the only reason he ranked it at 27 is because he knew people like us would be furious if he ranked it even lower, which clearly he wanted to go. 
the only thing that could have made this worse for Billy Joel is if he had put in like a waterfall sound effect throughout the song. <laughs> Bananas right. would have been like, that's it. 121. That's right. If this was anything after turnstiles, that would have probably happened. <laughs> and for some reason, a motorcycle noise is revving in the background. <laughs> yeah, I always take my bike up to uh, Highland Falls. It's all right. <laughs> well, fortunately, Glenn Gamboa ranks it at seven where it completely belongs. He says the exact opposite. Even without the lyrics, the music of summer, comma, Highland Falls feels like sadness or euphoria. Joel then layers the lyrics about the wild mood swings that come with love slipping away due to problems out of his control. It's the musical definition of bittersweet. And the fans rank this at number four. Nice. Right. We're all in agreement on that. For me, this song has completely resonated over the years as a personal, not just a personal favorite, but it's a song that I can sing well. <laughs> this is the one <laughs> I like to sing if I'm asked to sing somewhere that I can hit the notes properly. Uh, there's something about the the exact range it works for me. You know, I don't I don't know why. I'm trying to think like the first time I. You know, in college, when I started listening to turnstiles, I just I just don't remember this song at all. I don't know why. You know, I was all into Angry Young Man and Miami 2017. And I, I don't know how this got lost in the shuffle. But in the very early 90s, when I started doing comedy and met some of the people I know today, my friend Diana Lewis, who's now a, a, the, the Bronx district attorney, uh, she was dating this guy. <laughs> now that I think about it, she was dating this guy who we met because Howard Stern was having a, he had his channel nine show and this guy said he could blow smoke out of his eyes. <laughs> so I actually went to the Stern show that day with this guy. Anyway, it turns out this guy was a, a musician, a really good accomplished pianist. And I always like to sing a song on my birthday somewhere at a club somewhere. And he suggested this song. And I said, I don't know that song. And then he played it for me. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, how many people can play that on the piano? I'd never heard anything like it in my life in the sense of hearing somebody play it live. And, and he had trouble playing it too. And he was, you know, technically accomplished, whatever that means, mm -hmm. you know, since we've never heard of that guy again. Um, I don't even remember his name. I heard the song and I'm like, boy, that'd be great if, you know, if I could work this out and hit all the notes and it's so beautiful. It's an interesting song to sing, you know, as if you're singing Billy Joel songs when most people are going to sing moving out and stuff like that. Yeah, because you want to do a song that the rest of the crowd who aren't big Billy Joel fans will will recognize. Yeah, but it was so beautiful. So the night of my 26th birthday, that's exactly when it was right. I was wait, but wouldn't that have been before this song was written? Shut up, you bastard. <laughs> ah, you bastard. <laughs> Wait, so this happened in 1962? I don't understand. <laughs> I hate you so much. Um, you know, someday you're going to be my agent. You'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, my 26th birthday, I did comedy at the Boston Comedy Club upstairs. And then everyone came down, like the whole audience. I felt bad, actually. Everyone came downstairs to what is now the Zinc Bar, but used to be called the Sun Mountain Cafe. 
where they had, uh, you know, live bands to watch me sing Summer Highland Falls. And like everybody came down, like all the comics, the audience. And I sang this song and it was great because no, because it wasn't the way it is today where it's a true Billy Joel classic. It was still kind of hidden amongst only the truest and loyalist of fans. It's definitely grown over the years to where, you know, your dad might know about it, or which I'm saying myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, no, you know what I mean? It's, it's definitely in that time in the 90s. It wasn't like it is today. Now people recognize it and they love it and they want them to play it in concert. But it wasn't like that in whatever this uh, mid or mid 90s area that I was in uh, doing this in. And people loved it. I mean, not. Maybe yeah, not it, it was well received. What? It was well received by the crowd. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the, I, I really couldn't go wrong as long as I didn't, uh, you know, mess up, uh, crack my voice or something. And, and even if I did, no one would have cared. It was my birthday. Like I said, the people followed me downstairs into the basement, you know, for this club. I mean, it was a it was kind of a magical evening. So much fun for everybody because none of the comics had ever done anything like that before, for sure. And I don't think anybody even knew I could sing. Wasn't even sure if I could handle the thing myself. But and and I wasn't sure if this guy could handle the the piano. You know, he. I mean, this is a very complicated, unbelievable song. I I, I could never play it myself. Well, you know, the good thing is, since no one knew the song, if your voice cracked or if this guy hit a wrong note, you could have been like, that's how Billy Joel did it. I'm just doing a really (laughs) authentic representation of it. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I think a lot of people didn't even know it was a Billy Joel song. They were like, here's a Dave Jeskow original. (laughs) This guy's really talented. What the hell? I'm sure I could have gotten away with that. I guarantee it. With 98% of the crowd, they would have been like, yeah, I never heard that before. Yep. Nobody would have ever known. It's amazing that it has... I don't know, like come out of the woodwork in a way to be up there with everything else that we know, like a you know piano man and stuff. I mean, I know those are the it's hard for me to say the laissez faire uh, fan, but I, I, you know, I appear that way sometimes. So (laughs) but uh, I feel like I bought this song to the public, so uh, I'm responsible. Yeah, you got the ball rolling here. And uh, it it is a favorite amongst a lot of fans. We already know that. well, Alexa Ray says it's, it's her favorite song. This song, um, Summer Highland Falls, it's got to be my favorite of my father's songs. If I really had to choose in terms of just the craftsmanship, the writing, the music, it's honestly, from a songwriter's perspective, from my own perspective as a musician, it's pretty close to perfect, if not perfect. Well, that makes so much sense. Anybody that's, I think anybody that's, I, I would think a musician probably likes it even more because of the complicatedness of it. Yeah, especially when the person who taught you how to play the song is Billy Joel. So that's that's a, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I can't take anything that she says is her favorite. She could have a favorite for a different reason like, oh, you know, I was seven, I was having a bad day and he just kind of played this song for me and I perked up and you know, who knows what that that's not fair. <laughs> uh, we know that Liberty DeVito loves this song and we know he's a tough critic. He loves playing this song. But you think he hates the song, but just loves playing it for when his drums come in in the middle? That's the way I figure. He could take like he could take a one minute break in the beginning. So that's nice. He can go uh, drink a beer and then he comes back to (laughs) hit the drums. Yeah, well, maybe that's one of the things that solidified their friendship over the years in the sense of uh, at least keeping him on is that he loved this song. And this is certainly one of those songs 
where a drummer might say, like, you're kidding, right? This is a song you could see Liberty being like, are we really doing this? Yeah, uh, that's how special it is. Even the drummer likes it. Yeah. Um, Howard Stern seems to, this is, if not his favorite, one of his top, top favorite songs. He especially requests it and uh, really loves the song. If you listen to that interview in 2010. Yeah. I mean, now everybody requests it. And it's a, and the thing is, what is called a simple song with complicated notes. <laughs> right. I guess that says it all. Yeah. And uh, well, that's what's cool. In the 2010 Howard Stern interview, Billy kind of explains how he started with just having the chords. And then he made all those notes, which kind of gave off the manic depression feel of the going up and down and up and down and really adding all those flourishes to it. Well, it's the left hand. It was the bass line that the piano goes down, up, down, up. Right. That's the manic mm -hmm. depression you were just saying. And then the right hand is doing this other like manic thing where, where it's play, it's a bit bouncy. And the whole song then describes manic depression in the music. Billy Joel says it's a disturbing song in a major key. <laughs> yeah, which is odd because usually it's the minor keys that are the sadness of all songs. Yeah. The sadness or euphoric of all songs. The most euphoric of all keys. Uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, obviously one of Billy Joel's heroes, has a song called Manic Depression. I don't know if you know that song, but it also has a very discordant kind of feel to it. The way the drums and the guitar go against each other. I couldn't find anything specific about how they composed that one. But when you hear that song, too, you get this uneasy kind of feeling. Mm. So I wonder if Billy Joel was inspired by that song, which he certainly was aware of. That makes a lot of sense. You know, for some reason, I don't know whether I knew that this was on Songs in the Attic. And until we did this podcast, I don't ever think I heard the live version. Really? Yeah. I was so obsessed with the studio version and its greatness. I, I don't think I'd ever heard the live version. I don't like it. I don't think it works as well live as that beautiful original 1976 version. I like it. And I think that in general, when he plays this live, it's always a very... Um it's very spot on with the studio versions. This isn't a song that sounds very different live. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think there's more power to it live. It just seems like it's always good. Well, I it's think that's why I don't like solid. it live. I think because you're right, there is no difference to it, which is fine because of its intimacy. The studio version is better. Yeah. That's no, fair. I, I, I just feel like it loses something at MSG unless everybody is absolutely silent which of course is no fun whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> because you're going to hear this song and then you're going to be there. Somebody going, like, I'm going to go to the bathroom. <laughs> That's not right. This song is too beautiful and weird and awesome. And, oh, it's so special more so than any other song he's ever written. It's just so out there. The lyrics are so crazy and, and they're, they really are. I never I never knew it was a song about manic depression. I didn't get it. And then you, you, you see these lyrics and then you hear them and you're like, boy, it's beautiful and it's crazy. Well, it almost feels like I mean, he's in more recent years, he always says it's about manic depression. In earlier interviews, he brings up more the fact that it was also about his relationship with Elizabeth. Oh this is kind of the you, first song. You do not just bring her up. I have during to. this. I know. Yeah. Well, this is before this song. All his songs about Elizabeth were like kind of just love songs. This is the first one to show, hey, there's some cracks in this relationship. And so I feel like the manic depression isn't just it within Billy himself. It's almost like when he's high, she's low. And when she's low, he's high. 
or I think I just said the same thing when he, <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, it's him realizing this relationship isn't perfect. There's a lot of issues that they have here and sort of just kind of being disappointed in that, but also accepting, well, this is, this is how it is. Yeah. This is the song that kind of leads us to everything we know about Billy and this awful Elizabeth Weber just keeps coming up all the time on this podcast. And how could she not? I, how does one man write so many songs that aren't about Christy Brinkley in one lifetime? I, I just don't understand it. I, I mean, again, we got to find this woman. So I got to know what is so great about Elizabeth Weber. My God, we just did stop in Nevada last time. And I'm like, well, come on what again what what and that was the start of their relationship i you can't know, it, take it i tell you i can't take it and we talk about how rosanna arquette like wow she was such a muse she had two songs written about her yeah you know, uh, elizabeth weber has had like 10 of the best billy joel songs written right about her 10 of the best whether they were bad or good 10 of the best this woman should be up on mount rushmore I, the, never unless maybe it's just us because we're doing a Billy Joel podcast, but I don't know any other band or, or dude that has written this many songs about one person. You had about 10 songs for Elizabeth Weber, three songs about his mom and the rest about food. You, you've just described the exact Billy Joel catalog. That's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> oh, and the and of course, the, uh, sailing, the ocean uh, sailing. Right, yeah, right. right. <laughs> All right. So we have four elements when it comes to Mr. Joel. Yeah, it's like you'd have a, one of those grids and like it's like the data points are plotted like this song is about sailing and Elizabeth. So it goes up here. This one's about sailing and food. So that goes down here. That is one of the things we have to put together. I have to put together how many songs are about. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to like after we leave here, maybe for the S wraps up or something, because I can't wait for the end of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> and now I need to know how many songs out of the 121 are about these four things. Yeah, it's the Billy Joel matrix. And it could be some songs could be about multiple things. So you got, you know, okay, this song has meatball subs, but it's also got <laughs> it's also got a sailboat in it. So we got to put that in both of those. Damn it. Right. That'll be the we'll just call those the matrix ones. Well, that's the category. That nice way of putting it. <laughs> so wait, let's um, if you're let's go over the lyrics of all these lyrics in this episode, because they're so special and it's just so fascinating. They say that these are not the best of times, but they're the only times I've ever known. I mean, right there, it starts. It's right out of a tale of two cities. It's uh, it's one of the greatest opening lines of all time. People put it in their high school yearbooks, right? It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's that from? <laughs> when Mr. Burns is giving Bart a tour, I think it was, he gives Bart a tour of his whole uh, mansion. And he's like, I got a thousand monkeys on a thousand typewriters trying to write the next great novel. And he, he picks up one of the monkeys writings and, he, and they almost nailed a tale of two cities. But he got one typo. And he's like, what am I paying you guys for? Right. And then don't they have the monkeys just saying it's a miracle I could type at all? Or is that the one? Or- I don't know. I don't think they say that, but they're like smoking cigarettes, like real writers. Right, right, right. And that's the thing. I mean, well, then it goes, and I believe there was a time for meditation in cathedrals of our own. This floors me. Now I have seen that sad surrender in my lover's eyes, and I can only stand apart and sympathize, for we are always what our situations hand us. It's either sadness or euphoria. I I don't think I've ever heard uh, uh, an artist use the word lover before that um, works. 
because it's a little sappy sometimes and weird. Yeah. Well, it's like that whole line. First off, it has a great alliteration. Seeing that sad surrender sounds great together. All those mm-hmm. S's. Yes. Um, it almost has a little bit of a twang. It's like almost slightly country the way he sings that. And like Stop. the way he says lover in my lover's that. eyes. Shut up. <laughs> you know that just we need a Garth me. Brooks version of this song. <laughs> Garth, are you out there? Oh my god. Now I have seen that sad surrender in my lover's eyes. Please stop. And I can only stand apart and sympathize. (laughs) (laughs) I can't handle it. Between that and Elizabeth Weber talk, I'm out today. You know, this is how A Tale of Two Cities opens the first paragraph. It's exactly, I really do believe he, you know, it's from this. How else does it go? I'm saying I don't think you can open. They say the news of the best of times without thinking, of course, about it. And everybody knows the first two lines, but it continues in this kind of yin and yang that we're discussing. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, which is clearly what he's doing, right? (laughs) Yeah, because he's saying these are not the best of times. And then he's thinking that's in the book. But these aren't the worst of times. It's just the only times. This is all we know. These are the times. Right. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. Took me a long time to figure that one out. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Because he couldn't say that back then, I guess. You think so? (laughs) In short. He said H-E double hockey sticks. (laughs) (laughs) Dickens was always writing shit like that. Yeah. (laughs) In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Man, that is like one heavy opening paragraph. But if it doesn't completely say what this song is, I, I don't see how he's not kind of somehow having this in his head before writing this song. It is the exact up and down dark and light of what he's completely going for in this song. That's a great find. I think you're totally right with that. It's all opposites, just like this song. Yeah. So let's go to the second verse. So we'll argue and we'll compromise and realize that nothing's ever changed for all of our mutual experience. Our separate conclusions are the same. Now we are forced to recognize our inhumanity. Our reasons coexist with our insanity. And though we choose between reality and madness, the only part of the chorus is it's either sadness or euphoria. Boy, you bring a song like this to uh, Columbia where you're trying to be like, I got a song for you. Everybody's going to sing along to. Yeah. They're going to throw you right the hell out. You can give this to the Osmonds. This is good stuff right here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, This is a tough one to say you're going to put on a rock and roll album. We are forced to recognize our inhumanity. Billy, get the hell out of my office. (laughs) But it's so beautiful because it's it's a risky song for a rock and roll guy. It's a very risky song. It's a risky song, but the risk paid off. This album shot up to 121 on the charts. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Perhaps this song made it you know, that Columbia wanted to have nothing to do with it. Like we like a lot of these songs, but 
come on, man. This is a, it's just right out of the thing you do. I need something snappy and poppy. Come on. But maybe it's the opposite. Maybe they were like, look, the album didn't sell well, but we clearly see that you're very, very talented because of songs like this. So we're going to give you another shot. That never happens in the record industry. There's, there's, you know, unless they make a movie about the one person that believed in them, you know, and we know that Columbia did not like this album and didn't want to do anything to help him. Well, there were rumors that Elizabeth had an affair with the head of the record label. So maybe that's what kept him on. Oh, my God. I totally believe that, too. But the funny thing is, as much as we hate her, um, she probably just really did it for Billy. <laughs> like She probably or for herself, but she probably didn't do it to that. She liked the guy or that she did it for any other reason except to really help herself and make sure that Billy stayed on top. So you yeah. have to respect it. Yeah. I did this for you, Billy. Why are you mad? Uh, I don't know. I thought I'd be happy about it, but now I'm a little confused by it. <laughs> so write a song about that. How thoughtlessly we dissipate our energies. It's that's amazing. Perhaps we don't fulfill each other's fantasies. And as we stand upon the ledges of our lives with our respective similarities, which actually is my least favorite line in the way it goes in the music, it's either sadness or euphoria. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> and then he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. For the always, longest time. <laughs> that was always my favorite part to sing because, uh, again, I hadn't sung songs like this before. I was coming off singing show tunes and stuff like that. So to sing a song where there's like a, whoa, you know, it was exciting because then you feel like you're actually a singer because, yeah. you know, when you sing that or a la, 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 <laughs> there's a risk involved to it because it's not normal. Yeah, yeah. You know, I never thought of it, but the last verse there, I feel like this is, I, mean, I think he's talking about sexual things here because he says how thoughtlessly we dissipate our energies. And I think dissipate our energies is kind of like, let's say, getting a sexual release, oh. you know, thoughtlessly, like they're not, they're going through the motions. Perhaps we don't fulfill each other's fantasies. That's good. Like we're not really right for each other, but this is what we've got here. This very imperfect relationship, but what it's acceptance. You, what do you make of the instrumental part of it? Do you think it fit? Do you think it was a, it, what is that a flute it's a sax it's i don't know what's the sax it's not like the usual curvy one it's the straight long one <laughs> i don't know what you call like instruments a clarinet it's like i don't know is it the alto sax or the it's one of those things uh -huh. it looks clarinetty yeah but i think technically it's one of the saxophones i don't know it, that it's a very dated kind of yeah. instrumental yeah. and i feel like i don't know what else they could put there if they made a modern version of this song but it's probably yeah. the worst part of the song just that use of that instrument was it? Is it really 50 years ago that he wrote this song? Yeah. No, 40, not quite. 40, 46, 46 years. 40, okay. So almost 50 years ago, a guy wrote a song that's so meaningful and unbelievable that it, that it got better with age. Like we were saying, I mean, I'm telling you, this song was not the way it is, the way people feel about it today. And I don't know what made it hit. I'm not taking responsibility. <laughs> but i i promise you in the 90s this was not the end all billy joel song so i don't know when it happened perhaps when he put it on the millennial album i feel like it my money i feel like it's before that but now it's kind of a staple which it just wasn't until more recently yeah i think also the internet helps because you have you know you have your diehard fans, but they don't really have a way of connecting with each other back in the 80s and the 90s. So they don't they know, hey, I love that song, but I don't know anyone else who loves that song. Then you get the Internet and you're like, oh, we all love this song. 
So, you know, also I did this song again because I, you know, I, I love, I mean, I love this song. I love mm-hmm. this song. I love it. Again, I'm just so overly amazed. Anyone could play this on the piano. I mean, it's such a complicated song. What was the song? Stiletto we were talking about where he's playing, you know, where we're talking about patting your head and rubbing your stomach. Uh, uh, here's the same thing. You're playing mm-hmm. one thing with the left hand and one thing with the right hand. How many people can do that? You know, like, I mean, I know it probably sounds if a musician's listening, they're like, what are you talking about? That's like everybody does that. But yeah. I, there's, this, this song is, he says, it's a simple song, but with complicated notes. It just makes so much sense. There's so much going on. And yet, like the song says, there's nothing going on. Yeah, you kind of end up in the same simple. place. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's, it's, a, it's the perfect mix, which is, I suppose, why it, finally started resonating with people off an album that everybody now respects that didn't do well. And it's just classic. I guess the thing is when a musician stops writing music, you go to the back catalog to look for these kind of songs that made him the way he is. And you want more. And maybe you just go through these, the back catalog to find more gems like we are. Yeah, you have to go. That's that's where you find the new. It's rediscovering these songs that you overlooked. Rediscovering, exactly. It is strange, though, considering, like you said, how this song was really overlooked for so long that in, in 85, when Billy Joel played Farm Aid, and he only played three songs, that this was one of the songs. He opened with this song. Worst version I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Worst version ever. <laughs> Did you enjoy that version? It was all right. Oh, see, again... um, there's something about uh, when the baseline comes in or something where it just doesn't seem as uh, uh, intimate. Again, that, that's the perfect word. Uh, this song isn't a live song, at least for me. I didn't like that version. I was surprised as you were that he played it in 1985, but it's one of those things. So, I mean, again, just using myself as an example, because I have such a connection to this song and just the way it moves me and, and it's just strange, unbelievable, non-Billy Joel-like lyrics. During the pandemic happened, you know, I sang this song and put a video together because the Comedy Cellar was closed. And I put all these pictures of all the people that work at the Comedy Cellar. And they had me playing the piano or whatever I was doing <laughs> in a horrible uh, pants that I hate now. And I just put this together and it just fit perfectly, you know, like in the sense of this is the song you bring out when things are bad. So in 1985, when Farm Aid, he's like, things are bad. This is the song that's going through my head. It's just it's the opening line alone that he's probably like, oh, yeah, that'll work. They say the D's are not the best of times, but they're the only times I've ever known. So, yeah, we're going through a bad time. What are you going to do? Yeah, I guess that's that's probably the reason why he did it. But, yeah, you're like midway through that performance. He kind of looks into the audience and is like, maybe I shouldn't have chosen this one. Exactly. You know? Um, by the way, I remember now that you did that pandemic video, and I feel like you should give us a little taste of it in this episode. I, w- I want to hear some of that Dave Juskow version, because that was really good. <laughs> so we'll argue and we'll compromise Realize that nothing is ever changed For all our mutual experience Our separate conclusions are the same Our inhumanity. A reason coexists with our insanity. 
Yeah, if you want to see it, I I think it's still on. I guess it would still be on Instagram, right? I mean, I guess yeah, it, it's all there. Yeah, I guess it's on either my feed or the Comedy Cellars in the in the back catalog of the April of 2020, I believe. I think it was April of 2020. Is that Probably. right? Probably, yeah, April, May. Yeah, Unless, you wouldn't have done it in March already. That was too soon. Yeah, that was too soon. But yeah, everybody uh, liked it, which made me happy. And um, you know, I think I did an okay singing of it you know that, that this advanced age uh <laughs> trying to hit those notes and of course i always feel awkward oh <laughs> because that one can go so badly oh <laughs> <laughs> It's either sadness or euphoria. Boom, boom. That's uh, it's so I didn't even know when I first, you know, heard about the song when this kid told me about it. That's again, I don't know how I didn't know about it. Uh, probably because it's called Summer Highland Falls, and I'm like, well, how's that go? You know, because you're not because it doesn't have the name like, again. Yeah, like yeah. five fifteen or Bob O'Reilly or something, you know. And well, how's that go? And everybody, of course, knows it, but I never even heard of euphoria before i didn't heard a lot of these words before and i i was like well how am i going to sing a song with our separate conclusions are you know so we're we're forced to recognize our inhumanity our reason coexists with our insanity i'm like i i, I can't picture dave Jeskow singing a song like this so live billy joel plays this a bunch but not a ton it's well, the third well, but let me ask you know just asking is it a ton lately or, you know, like, uh, is my theory correct? Did he not? I'm going to take a guess. I have not seen the live stats. This is my guess, like the way you guess the rankings that he played it in, you know, the late 70s, possibly, maybe, <laughs> and maybe played a couple times. But I feel like after 2000, then maybe played it a little more. Yeah, that's a good guess. That's pretty much how it went. Uh, he's played this overall 134 times. But there were only eight plays in the 1980s. And I think about half of those were leading up to the songs in the attic recording. So he was just kind of working towards it on the, those various shows that he recorded for the album. Right. So really, in the 80s, this was not part of it. And one of those performances was Live Aid. I mean, I mean, Farm Aid. Farm Aid. Yeah. So yeah, since 2000, definitely more frequent, although never like multiple months in a row, kind of just be like on and off a few times a year. And since the summer of 2019, he's only played it twice. Which is not good. We want to hear more of this song. Yeah, but I, I think he's in agreement in the fact that it is not a live song. It is an intimate song. You play at a smaller venue and it is not an MSG song. Well, that's why. So in that 81 interview, he says, like you mentioned, that this is a great song to go second in a concert, which, as you said, this, this might be a bathroom break song. No one's going to the bathroom on the second song. So that's a good idea. But in recent years, it is never the second song. It's almost always the fourth song. Well, I don't I also don't think in, in, in nowadays this wouldn't be a bathroom break song. You know, I, I think it's that beloved for the last 22 years 
that it wouldn't be a bathroom break song. But like you said, you're right. Nobody's going to the bathroom the second or fourth song. And the only reason he said it was a great second song is because he says your first song, you know, is shot out of a cannon, usually, unless you're opening with Stormfront. Uh, <laughs> thank you. A little callback to all this as songs we're doing this week. But yeah, and then that's why I guess for me, I don't think this is a second song at all. I mean, like I said, he's proved it by making it the second song on Turnstiles and on Songs in the Attic in that sense. But I, I don't think it's a second song at all. I think it's more like a fourth or fifth in the sense, you know, you want to, I think you open, this is the way I would do a concert. You open big, you go big, one, two, three. And then, yeah, take it down four or five, maybe bring yeah. it up again. So I, I don't see this as a second song at all. You know, I, I want to revise my earlier statement. I said second song would not be a bathroom break song, but I forgot that Billy Joel's audience is getting older and they have issues with bladder control. So it might be a bathroom break song. You know, I know you're mocking me, but I think you have a lot of nerve. I've been as long as I don't drink beer, I can completely go through an entire concert without going to the bathroom a lot. You know, I um, have sat through four Broadway plays recently without going to the bathroom at intermission. Yeah, you know why? Because they don't really serve beer too much at Broadway plays. If you're at a Billy Joel concert, you're definitely drinking beer and you're definitely having a pee. Damn it. But let us uh, not forget that we are talking about one of the true greatest songs that has ever been recorded by anyone and by our boy, uh, Billy Joel. This is a classic. I wonder where this appears for me. I'd be excited to to figure out where this one in particular was if if I just said the other day that it's possible sleeping with the television, I might be my number one. I don't know. This could also be my number one because it means so much to me. And I don't know whether it's its lyrics or whatever, but I guess because I have such a personal connection to it just by, I, I don't know. This is the song I've chosen when I want to sing something, even if it's karaoke or whatever it is. This is the Billy Joel song for me. Yeah. And for me, I would probably put it nine or 10, somewhere in that kind of range. It's got to be top 10 now, right? But I guarantee before 2000, it was nobody's top 10, unless you were a musician and trying to be cool. You know, like, well, let's face it. You know, I'm a, hey, I'm a musician. I, you know, my favorite song is all you want to do is dance. <laughs> I, I'm that one. What are you talking about? Well, how could you not like that song? It's got everything. <laughs> it's got a little bit of reggae. It's yeah, it's one of those, those guys, those musicians you meet along the way that actually end up convincing you of why it's good and, then you have to be like, maybe I got to second guess that guy. <laughs> yeah, they've got like a 10 page essay on like how all the notes have perfectly fit with each other. You know, I'm teaching a class on this song in January. Yeah, I heard it. it's about Clueless and Summer Highland Falls. <laughs> Summer Highland Falls. It's a very strange class. <laughs> it's just it's called Things Dave Jeskow Likes. <laughs> exactly. Things Dave Jeskow Likes, but was never supposed to teach other people about. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole there's a whole two week thing about Dinty Moore beef stew. How dare you bring up that Dinty Moore beef stew gag? That was how I expanded my act. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good bit. Go see Dave live. Hear about beef stew and Queen what Elizabeth. Bastard. How dare you? Just because you're past the comedy cell, you think you're so great now. <laughs> you ought to be ashamed of yourself bringing that up. I can't believe you just brought up the Dinty Moore beef stew. Because I like it. Yeah, right. Well, Dave, it's time for the trivia portion of the show. Do you have a stumper for me? I got one for you. It's the stupidest one ever for this song, but I couldn't help myself because I had nothing else, ironically. Uh, I already talked about myself too much, and uh, this is the only place I could go. 
I'm just going to give it to you straight. You can guess my numbers. Which original cast Star Trek movie <laughs> took many of its plot points from A Tale of Two Cities, including quoting the opening and ending lines from the book? You can just choose numbers one through six. Uh, I'll say The Wrath of Khan. That is correct. <laughs> Number two. Two, two, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you would. I just said, well, I'll let him pick the numbers. Then I'll go, that's right. I forget. Actually, that's the only one that I know the name of, I think. Oh, the Search for Spock. That's number three. And then there's the one with the whales in San Francisco. That's number four. Yeah, that's all I know. <laughs> I know. What is number four called? Um, oh, crap. I can't remember. Superman four, the quest for peace. Quest for the quest for peace. Right here. Gene Hackman imitation. Star Trek five was horrible. And Star Trek says uh, the undiscovered country. I don't remember that. But <laughs> yes, Wrath of Khan. Spock gives him a tale of two cities as a gift on his birthday. Then he, he, start, he opens the thing. It was the best times, the worst times. And then it ends. The final frontier, however the ending is. What is the ending? I don't remember. Whether it's whether it's a, a far, far better place uh, I go than I've ever gone before. That that's what it is. It's uh, it, it, again, it um, it works in the Summer Highland Falls. Uh, you know the way uh, the the song itself. It, totally a tale of two cities, or as uh, that Garfield movie is called, a tale of two kitties. <laughs> that's garfield 2 classic oh it's classic all right wasn't the story that bill murray agreed to do those movies by accident yeah i, I don't think he thought it was animated no he thought he heard i think the director of it was some guy named cohen and he thought it was the cohen brothers oh <laughs> they thought they're gonna put a different take on garfield right yeah so he's like oh cohen brothers movie yeah but it's like some guy like steve cohen or something yeah he thought it was um uh, about uh, Garfield, the, the president who was assassinated, I think. Yeah, he, he threw his facial hair out like James A. Garfield. <laughs> right. But then, well, how do you explain the sequel then, Alon? Money. He's signed up for two movies. <laughs> Tale of Two Kitties. <laughs> the sequel. <laughs> what's that? For? Alvin and the Chipmunks? That's right. That's right. The sequel. I knew it from something. <laughs> So, Alon, do you have a better trivia question than I had for me? I think it might be a little bit better. I think you'll like it. Farm Aid, where Billy Joel played this song, Farm Aid marked the first public appearance of what guitarist and singer as bandmates. So there was a guitarist and there was a singer. They became bandmates for the first time publicly at Farm Aid. Paul Simon and Edie Brickell. <laughs> Could that possibly be the answer? I don't I, I took I I was I don't know what maybe I was thinking of people that were separate and now are together. OK, so right? think it's it's 1985. Yeah, no, that I know. So that's why I said that could have been the answer. OK, well, it's not that. But I kind of knew it also wasn't them. But then I took a chance and said, wouldn't that be exciting if I got it right? Um, so they became kind of they put out a couple albums after that as a, as kind of a oh, is it? Oh, no, that can't be their brother and sister. I was going to say Jack White. That, that can't the be right. singer uh, joined the band that already existed of this guitarist. Singer joined the band. Uh, Van Halen? Yes. Oh, <laughs> all right. Sammy Hagar was there doing a solo set, and the plan was that he was going to bring out Eddie Van Halen. They were going to play Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin, and they were going to then announce to the world, you know, this huge live TV and radio audience, that Eddie, that, that Sammy was joining the band. It was gonna be oh. a huge moment, right? Oh. But what happened was, uh, after uh, after the first song, Sammy Hagar was just killing it. Everyone was loving him. So before he started doing "I Can't Drive 55, 
his intro to that was, here's a song for all you tractor pulling motherfuckers. And they cut that, they cut the live broadcast because he was cursing so much. And so even though he then he did bring out Eddie and they played rock and roll, a lot fewer people saw it than what they originally thought. What a bunch of sissies. They, they don't think people that drive tractors could handle the F-bomb? Well, it's probably for the whole national audience. But I, I watched it on... A lot. There was no national audience for that. Trust me. Well, all because <laughs> of Sammy. They have it on YouTube. You can watch this whole set. And before that, he was cursing a lot. This guy really had, had a filthy mouth. Just a lot of uh, F-words and S-words. Yeah, because he's always high on tequila. That's probably what it is. Very high on tequila. And um, I also... It's kind of funny to watch the video because the bass player from Sammy Hagar's solo band. He's got really long hair, but his face looks just like Pete Holmes. It's, <laughs> so, it's a really off-putting looking right, guy. Right. So it looks like it's a, like he's a phony. It looks like Pete Holmes trying to infiltrate the Sammy Hagar band in 1985 doing a bit. Yeah, you think it's like <laughs> some kind of bit where they like superimpose his face into right. some like long-haired rock guy. It's very weird. Well, I didn't know that's where the, the plan was to announce the band. I thought you were saying that's where they met but they had already planned it out that he was going to join the band. Well, yeah, that makes yeah. that that timeline makes complete sense. Right. Right after the 1984 album. And then they uh, come out with that unbelievable 5150 uh, produced by Mick Jones. Mick Jones. Yeah. How do you parody a song like this? How are you going to mock up and, 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 and make fun of a beautiful ballad like this you son of a bitch you ought to be ashamed of yourself <laughs> well i got something here my my parody is called autumn hill valley autumn hill valley what is hill valley do you know hill valley yeah yeah wait yeah 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 why do i know hill valley hill valley isn't there cheese that comes from there or... <laughs> no it's a hidden valley ranch no yeah it's hidden valley <laughs> Hill Valley. Oh, Hill Valley is Back to the Future. That's right. All right. All right. Well, now you got me. Damn it. You found a way to work it out. <laughs> I already like this song. In fact, don't sing the rest of the parody. It's done. I'm That's assuming it. in my head what it is, and it's perfect. Yeah. All right. Everyone else, imagine the song. And uh, that's it. It's this imaginary. Uh... Imagine the song was erased from existence. <laughs> it's what we might want to do after I'm done with this one. I traveled back to 1955 in a time machine built by my friend Doc. And now my only chance to make it back to the future is if lightning strikes a clock. Meanwhile, my teenage mom has fallen in love with me. And my dad won't make a move because he's a pussy. But if he can fight that asshole Biff, he'll fix my fate. And I'll go 88 in my DeLorean. I see my future fading right in front of me. But my parents kiss and I get back all my energy. And on the dance floor while they share and embrace, I go race to my DeLorean. Bum, bum. Hey now. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> oh, that was good. That was good. You found a way to to, to make a, a parody of Summer Highland Falls enjoyable and fun. And uh, for me personally, to relive uh, the greatest movie ever made, Back to the Future. Yes. That was a wonderful job. Look at me. I'm an old man. Marty, 
a portable television studio. Of course, your president has to be an actor. He has to look good on television. Well, folks, that was Summer Highland Falls. If you like our podcast, be sure to go to Apple and give us five stars. We release new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, so make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss a single song. Follow us on social media at BillyJoel A to Z and give us some feedback. Is this song in your top 10? Did you notice that this song wasn't so popular until after 2000? Have any of you used this song's lyrics for your high school yearbook quote? And which of the four major Billy Joel song topics are your favorites? Incredulity. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, I'm Alan Altman. I'm Dave Juskow. And this is Billy Joel A to Z. Similarities. See the sadness. Oh.